This is the fourth Sunday of Easter, and every fourth Sunday of Easter, we read the gospel about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. So this has been called in the Episcopal Church, I don't know what it is in other traditions, Good Shepherd Sunday. And so it's a, there are two readings that are important, uh, maybe three, uh, that are important this morning that I want to, to focus on. One is the reading from the book of Acts, and the other is the gospel. And what we have are two lines Uh, First in Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. And then in the gospel, Jesus says, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So before I get into those two passages, which are important, I want to say a word about the image of Jesus as the good shepherd. You know, we call the clergy, or at least the chief uh, clergy person in a parish, the pastor in many places. Even in the Roman Catholic Church, the, the principal priest is the pastor of the congregation. And this term is being more more and more used in the Episcopal Church. Um, We have vicar and we have rector, but they have a sort of um, a sound to some people that sounds kind of uh, rigidly institutional. Just so you know, a vicar is somebody who is the pastor of a mission congregation, one that is not self-supporting financially, (laughs) and uh, they are directly under the auspices in the Episcopal Church of the bishop. So a bishop could pull a vicar and uh, replace them fairly easily. And in self-supporting congregations, which may be an oxymoron, uh, the, the principal priest is called the rector, but rector comes from a Latin word which means ruler, and that kind of causes disease in some people. So pastor is probably a good word. A vicar is in a congregation vicariously for the bishop. That's where we get the word vicar. And rector is often a term used even in the Roman Catholic Church for the head of schools. So if you go, if you, you know, like in the Jesuit tradition and so on, the head of a, of a Jesuit school would often be called the rector of the, of the school. So maybe more information than you wanted. The first uh, depiction that we possess in Christian art of Jesus crucified on the cross dates from the 5th century. So in the early uh, centuries of Christianity, the most common image was Jesus as the Good Shepherd. So you'll see if, you go, if you've been to Italy and you've gone to Ravenna and you've seen the mosaics and in other places, you'll see Jesus uh, with the sheep around his neck and uh, being the pastor. There's an interesting thing about that, by the way. I'll say, repeat myself again in the Gospel. Shepherds did not have a good reputation in the ancient Near East. They were not highly, uh, highly looked upon. And so it is interesting that the gospel writers uh, 
speak about the star being shown to the shepherds and the shepherds being warned and the shepherds somehow uh, loom large. And it may have something to do with uh, the paradox of Christianity that the gospel writers are interested in, in talking about. How does God's word come to people who are normally considered not in? So that's a question. On the door and Santa uh, Sabina, which is a big 4th century church in Rome, and I lived for uh, six weeks right across the street from Santa Sabina, and it's right next to the circus, where you know in Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston rode his chariots around that big loop. So it's right next to Santa Sabina, and we were across the street, Clivo di Publici numero due. <laughs> and right next to that was the uh, a Benedictine monastery, San Anselmo, which was the headquarters of the whole worldwide Benedictine order. So I was right in the middle of this, and I saw on the door the first depiction of Jesus in a panel on the cross, <coughs> and that's where we see it first. Yeah, or for the most part. So let me talk a little bit about the book of Acts. Uh, let me say this too initially. I've been speaking about this recently. About three months ago, I read a book uh, by a man named John Walton who uh, wrote a book about the creation stories in Genesis. And John Walton teaches... Old Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois, so you know that he's not a wild-eyed liberal. Right? Billy Graham went to Wheaton College. It's one of the centers of evangelicalism, actually a very responsible and good evangelicalism for the most part. John Walton wrote this book, and he says something in the book that is very important, and we need to hold it in our minds and in our hearts every time we read the Bible. The Bible was written for us. We believe that as Christian people. But the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written to different people in a different culture that spoke a different, different languages. And the way in which they understood cosmology, the way in which they understood how society is ordered, the way in which they understood what were the things that you needed to know if you were to be well-educated, all those things were different than, our, than in our own time. So when you read these, uh, this stuff, you need to understand that it had a meaning for its own time. That doesn't mean that because it had a meaning for its own time that we superimpose that meaning on our own life together as Christian people or as religious people for that matter. But we have to keep in mind that that is the case. That the Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. So the book of Acts is volume two of Luke's gospel. Luke wrote Acts. So Luke is volume one and Acts is volume two. There's been some scholarly literature that, is, that has suggested, at least when I was in seminary, there may have been a volume three, but we do not have it. 
we don't know where it is and we don't know whether it existed. But some would suggest because of the abrupt ending of the book of Acts that there would be something else, right? Right. But Mark wrote his gospel, which is the earliest gospel, with no resurrection appearance. The women ran away from the tomb and they were afraid. And the passages that come after that where it talks about handling poisonous snakes and, oh, there's a bunch of people in Appalachia who were handling poisonous snakes and it was not in the original manuscripts, but never mind. (laughs) Okay. So Luke had an idea about what he wanted to assert in the book of Acts. And this is important because why is Peter speaking uh, in this way? There is no salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. So within the Episcopal Church and the recent kerfuffles and in many other places, there are some conservative people within these faith groups who believe that we haven't pushed hard enough about the uniqueness of Christ and that there is no salvation outside accepting him. So here's what Luke had in mind when he wrote the book of Acts. He wanted to defend Christianity against the charge of political subversion. He wanted to demonstrate the essential unity of the church in its worldwide mission. He wanted to vindicate the part played by Paul, because clearly the Jerusalem church thought Paul was a crazy running around out there. I told you, to me, the great uh, contemporary uh, example of what they went through before they got to the Council of Jerusalem was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Remember when Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are running away from a, a marshal that is chasing them, and he was a guy who wore a boater hat, a skimmer. And they tried to get away, and they tried to get away, and they tried to get away, and finally they ended up on top of a mountain. And they turned, and they saw the guy with the boater hat on, and a posse riding after them, and uh, uh, Butch Cassidy says, who the hell is that guy? Right? So that's what the Jerusalem church thought about Paul. They wondered, who is this person who has no authorization and is doing this? So you will see that in the book of Acts, Luke is uh, taking pains to smooth things over and to say Paul is part of our self-understanding as Christian people, and you need to know that, because Paul's own writings, particularly in Galatians, uh, give us a different story than what the book of Acts does about who he was and what he did. So there was a desire to make that more harmonious than maybe it really was. And he wanted to give a picture of what Christianity is and how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome. So Peter's testimony is about him asserting that as a believer, this is how he understands Jesus and he speaks of the, of the uniqueness of Jesus. So it's kind of autobiographical, and it's uh, from the people that were around, surrounded around him, right? So this is time for David Brewer's personal testimony. 
I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And for me, there is no salvation without him. A priest that I knew very well many years ago, Mark may know, remember his name, Donald Seton. Don Seton was the rector of St. Paul's Church in Oakland. And he was dying of cancer. And he had been known among the clergy and other people who he served as their pastor as an expert on Eastern religion, particularly Buddhism. And so he talked a lot about Buddhism and he was involved in a lot of stuff with Buddhists and Eastern Christianity and giving lectures and doing this kind of thing. And so some of my clergy colleagues said, well, Satan, he's, he's a Buddhist. That's the truth. That's the fact. And at his funeral in Grace Cathedral, the preacher, Fortis Eastburn, said that when I was sitting with him by his bed as he was dying, I said to him, you know, Don, there's some people who think that you're really a Buddhist, that you're going to be a Buddhist. And he said, no. He said, I'm not a Buddhist because I can't live without Jesus. So the older I get, the more I understand that. But universalizing that testimony by Peter is not a good plan because people come to this in, in a way that is sometimes oblique and we have to see that. So I'm going to read to you something from Dr. John McQuarrie, who's a famous English theologian who died a few years ago. I met him once a long time ago. He was from Glasgow. Megan and I were talking about that. And he had a real Scottish accent. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful in discussing the place of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique. And therefore, so is Muhammad and so is Gautama Buddha. In place of the words rejected, unique, final, absolute, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus Christ as understood in Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians he defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity, which he has brought to a new level, and the nature of God, for the divine word, expressive being, has found its fullest expression in him. When Macquarie talks about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he talks about uh, primordial being as the Father, expressive being as Jesus, and uh, unit, um, unitive being as the Holy Spirit. So when in his, book, in his writing, and you hear him talk about that's that's what he's talking about in that case. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history and not an attempt to pronounce from some vantage point above history. As such, it is content to make an affirmation about Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses fullness and a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. I'm reading a biography now about Thomas Cromwell, 
And the reason I'm doing it is because I have been watching Wolf Hall. You, some of you may have read the books. I have. I need to read the books. And Cromwell looms large in this story. So this is a biography that gives uh, a different spin on Cromwell, who I was, I thought was kind of a wretch. But it's not completely true in this regard. And the reason that I mentioned it is that when you read about these controversies that were looming now in the Church of England, uh, they fascinate me as history. But you can also see that a lot of time and energy was spent on who was in and who was out. Right? So the reason I'm mentioning that is because in John's Gospel, we have a conversation about that, which again sounds like he's being exclusive when he speaks about uh, the one shepherd. I always am interested in when this gospel comes up because it was the section I had to translate from Greek into English in seminary. And I made an absolute pig's breakfast out of it. You, you should know, by the way, that the Greek in John's gospel is dead simple compared to Luke or compared to others. Clearly, Greek was not John's uh, first language. Right? So for people just learning Greek, it's easier to get through. And that's why often they give you these passages. But boy, so Father Edwards looked at me after he read my translation and he said, You are taking Greek next semester, aren't you, Mr. <laughs> I said, Yes, Father, I, 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 will, I will do that. And so forth. So Jesus says, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. John's gospel is the latest of the canonical gospels. And it reflects that community's understanding of the work of Jesus as it bears on their own understanding of the pastoral work of the church. So this is a statement about the mission of the church. So remember what I said about John Walton's book. There was stuff on the ground going on that animated the way in which John wrote the gospel. And one of them was the difficulty that existed within early Christianity, particularly and with the Jews, who loom large in John's gospel. And it has raised many questions recently about uh, those passages, which can be interpreted and construed as clearly anti-Semitic that there is some issues about how we understand who is in and who is out. So when he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, he's talking about the plural ways in which people come to faith in God and how those that were within his own community and in other outside uh, th th that Christian community understood who was in and who was out. So like Luke, John is writing to a community that has a lot of Gentiles in it. Right? And there's a lot of people who believe this message is not for the Gentiles. This message is for the people of the covenant. This is the fulfillment of the promises of God to the people of Israel. And anybody else, well, you know, I'll tell you what they have to do. The men have to be circumcised 
They have to keep all of the dietary laws, and they have to keep the Sabbath. That's what they have to do. Then they're in. Then they're in. And that's what Jesus really meant when he, in his preaching and teaching. And the community of the beloved disciple, as this, this group is often called, uh, said, no, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, remember, I also said earlier that the Bible uh, can be used, uh, in other words, that thought world, uh, what, that was animating them. But for us, we may look at, I have other sheep that are not of this fold differently, might we not? We could say we understand now that the, that the way in which we understand uh, wisdom and the uh, spiritual yearning of people uh, is and it, it is important, and we've learned some things about the great faith traditions that we didn't know before. And when you read about Cromwell and Henry VIII, they were in a pretty narrow, enclosed place. It's fascinating. I decided, I thought, well, I don't want to go back. I don't want to get in a time machine and go back. <laughs> but it's very interesting to think about and to read about, for sure. So we're talking about other sheep that are not of this fold and that the message of hospitality, inclusion, and generosity remains uh, at the center of the gospel, you know. Here, here's an, it just popped in my head because I'm reading this book. Spirituality, right? So we have people nowadays saying, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. If you went back to the 1500s, they wouldn't know what in the world you meant. They would have no idea about this because spirituality was called the spirituality, which meant all of the parts of society in the world that, were in, that dealt with the church, the property, the finances, the clergy, the people who owned buildings, all of those things was the spirituality. So Thomas More would not have known what in the world you were talking about when you said spiritual in this sense, right? They assumed everybody was, you know, re reading the Bible. Well, they're not reading the Bible. Not everybody could read. Uh, reading uh, books that were, had prayers in them, attending the Eucharist, doing those kinds of things. But they never thought of it as spirituality, right? They never wrote about it in that way or understood it. Actually, they really maybe understood it in terms of dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And I'm not so sure we want to think that way anymore. Some may. Some may find that extremely useful and the rhythm of this. And that's why worship is so important. And that's why doing these things is important. So when we think about these passages, understand that... Jesus is the unique definitive focus of the, divine, of the divine presence. And our hope and prayer as Christian people that we all come to that, right? That we come to believe it. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas? Do you believe me because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have come to believe. Amen.